Okay, so like I already mentioned, uh, this morning we are going to be addressing and exploring the subjects of worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this subject of worry and anxiety under two headings, okay? So we're going to begin by looking at the sin of worry, and that's where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. We're going to begin by looking at the sin of worry, and then after we look at the sin of worry, we are going to look at the Savior of worry. We're going to look at the sin, and then we're going to look at the Savior, okay? Now, in order to get a better understanding of that first point, which is the sin of worry, what I want to do this morning is I want to ask and answer three questions about the sin of worry. And here are the three questions that I want to ask and answer this morning. And I I feel that as we answer these questions, we're going to get a better understanding of what worry is and why it's a sin. The first question we're going to ask and answer this morning is, what is worry? What is it? Okay. Then the next question we're going to ask and answer this morning is, does worry work? Does it actually do anything? Does it work? And then the last question we're going to ask under this first point is, why is worry a sin? So what is worry? Does worry work? And why is worry a sin? So the first question that I want to ask and answer this morning is, what is worry. And the reason why I want to define the word worry is because in this passage, Jesus brings up the word worry six times. And so clearly that's the theme of the passage because he brings up the word six times. And in the Greek, the word worry is merimeneo, okay? And here's what the word worry means. I'm going to give you a definition of what the word worry means. In, in the Greek, the Greek word there, merimeneo, well, before I give you that, let me, let, me, let me explain it to you like this. When we think of worry, we, we tend to think of worry as just being a mental thing, something that's in our head, right? Some of us, we might think, well, it's not really a mental thing. It's more of an emotional thing. Or it's not really an emotional thing. It's more an environmental thing. Or it's not an environmental thing. It's more of a relational thing. See, worry is all those things, but it's, it's much deeper than that, okay? It's much deeper than that. It's not less than those things, but it's much more than those things. And what we're going to see this morning is that worry primarily is a spiritual problem. So it's mental, it's environmental, it's relational, it's emotional, but more than anything else, it is spiritual, okay? And the word there, metamineo, in Greek, here's what it means. It means to be over-concerned. So being concerned, there's nothing wrong with being concerned, right? But, but worry is to be over-concerned. Or, or another way they put it is to be full. It's okay to be careful, but it's not okay to be full of cares, Right? So it means to be over-concerned. Actually, another, another, uh, in the word studies I was looking at, another description or, or definition for that word, metamineo, it, it means to be pulled in many different directions at one time. It means to be torn apart in many different directions at all times. That's what the word worry means. And what I found fascinating is that the word worry that we have in English comes from an old German word that means to be choked and or strangled. Okay, so, so let me summarize the definition for you so that we're all on the same page. The, the word worry means to be overconcerned, to be full of cares. It means to be torn apart, and it means to be choked and or strangled. And if any of you have ever experienced worry, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the same Greek word metamineo is found in, in another passage in the gospel where Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house, and it says that Mary is at, her, at his feet worshiping him, and Martha is busy. It says that she's metamineo because she's distracted doing all these things in her house. 
She's worried about, and Jesus says, Martha, your sister chose the most important thing, the only thing that's necessary, and you are busy metamineoing around the house. You're being torn apart and, and pulled in different directions, and you're, you're focusing on everything but the thing that actually matters, which is me. And so that Greek word is used, and another place where that Greek word is used, metamineo, is when Jesus is talking about the seeds. He says that one of the seeds gets planted, and then it gets choked out, metamineo, by the worries of the world, by the cares of the world. So there's people who give Jesus a chance, and then the worries start choking them out. And because of metamineo, they walk away from Jesus. So this Greek word is used all throughout Scripture. Jesus says six times, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. Six times he tells us not to worry. I heard one pastor put it this way. I found it really helpful. He said that the way, here's the problem with worry. Worry is focused on the potential, not on the actual. Okay? Let me say that again. Worry is focused on what might potentially happen and not on what's actually happening. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, when you worry, worry doesn't take away the sorrows of tomorrow. It just takes away the strength from today. Worry doesn't take away your sorrows tomorrow. It just takes away your strength today. That's what worry does. Okay? And so if, the, if worry means to be overconcerned, then because we tend to be extremists, we're either on one side of the spectrum or the other side of the spectrum, what we do is, okay, if the problem is to be over-concerned, well, I know what I'll do. I'll be under-concerned. But that's actually not biblical either. And Dr. Timothy Lane, he's a, a, a biblical counselor. He has this really helpful diagram that he drew, and I want you to see it. He says, he, he takes this, this concept, and he says, listen, here are the two extremes that we have to avoid when it comes to, when it comes to worry. We already said that the definition of worry, right, is to be over-concerned, which is that top one, right? To be over-concerned is not a good thing. So what we do, after we've spent too much time being over-concerned, we overreact and then become under-concerned. And then, we, then when that doesn't work, we swing back to being over-concerned. And then when that lets us down, we go back to being under-concerned. Over-under. Over-under. Right? And I have, a, I have a good friend of mine, uh, his name's Tom Jensen, his wife Rose comes here to our church, and he's been doing marriage counseling for, for years, like longer than I've been alive. Like he's just super wise and godly. And he, 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 he's one of my mentors, he's one of the guys that's mentoring me, and he's been such a blessing to me. And he, he has this illustration that he uses with married couples, and I think it's just such a, a wonderful picture of what Dr. Timothy Lane is trying to illustrate here for us. He says that what Tom Jensen says, is that what people do is they do this with, with, when they're trying to, when they worry or they're, they're struggling with concern, right? They, they over-concern. Whatever it is they're worried about, whether it's their money or their family or their future or their health, whatever it is, or their singleness, right? Whatever they're worried about, when they get worried, they do this. They grab onto the thing. They grab on for dear life. I'm going to control this. I'm going to manipulate this. I'm going I'm to do whatever I can to fix this problem. I have this. I'm going to do this. He says, that's what we do. We, we grasp onto something and we're just, uh, this is what overconcern looks like, right? Here's what God wants you to do, though. God doesn't want you to do this. God wants you to do this. In other words, God says, look, I want you to be concerned, right? Because if you're not concerned, that's not good stewardship. I want you to be concerned, but I want you to make sure you give it into my hands. You, you're giving it up to me. That's why it says in Philippians that, that he says, do not be anxious, meromeneo, about anything, 
but in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. That's what this looks like. Hey, God, I know I have to steward my family. I know I have to steward my finances. I know I have to steward my marriage, my singleness, my education, but I'm opening it like this. My career, my whatever, right? But, but I'm, I'm, this is, is like this. I'm, I'm stewarding it. I'm doing my job, right? Because Jesus is not saying we shouldn't work. He's saying we shouldn't worry, right? So, so we, we, we're, we're, doing, we're being good stewards, but we're, we're, we're keeping our palms open, praying about it, giving it to God. That's how we should be. But here's what a lot of us do. And this is what Tom says that I think is just, it's so insightful. He says, we do this. We, we're overconcerned and we're grappling on to whatever it is, our prodigal or our, our broken marriage or our finances or, or our health or whatever it is that we're freaking out about, politics, you know, whatever it is. We, we go like this, we go like this, we go like this. And then when we get tired of doing this and it doesn't work anymore, we go like that. We let it go. So instead of doing what God says, we skip that and go, we go from here to here. I, I'm, I'm going to change my marriage. I'm going to change my child. I'm going to change this situation. I'm going to change my health. I'm going to change my finances. I'm going to get the job. I'm going to, 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 and then when, you get, when it isn't working, well, you know what? Forget it. Forget it then. So we go from over-concern to under-concern. But God doesn't want either of those. God doesn't want this. God doesn't want this. God wants this. Okay? So we must avoid both extremes okay so the first question is what is worry and we've already have defined that next question i want to answer under this first point is does worry actually work i don't know if you've ever asked that question right i don't know if i've ever heard a sermon where that question has been asked but but let's be, instead of just jumping into this thing right let's just ask a very practical question like how has worry actually worked out for you right well, well, Jesus actually answers the question for us because look what he says here. Uh, it's in verse 27. He says, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And in the Greek, it's actually a single cubit to your height. So it's actually, you can either be your height, right? If you're, if you're short, you're just short. You, worrying is not going to make you taller, right? And then, and then that's what it means in the Greek. Or the, the way translators translate it, you can't even add a single hour to your life even if you wanted to. So does worry actually work? Well, let, let's run down a normal day for, for you and I, okay? This is a normal day. I'm, I'm going to try not to exaggerate. I'm going to just try to run through a normal day. And then you tell me why if worry actually works, okay? So, so it's a normal day, and your alarm goes off, so you hit snooze a few times, right? So you end up waking up some, somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes later than what you were supposed to. So then all of a sudden you wake up and you're worried about being late. So you're worried about what are people going to think and you're worried about traffic and you're worried about weather patterns and you're worried about all the things that could potentially happen because you got up late, right? So, so you're worried about that. Then as you're getting ready, you start putting outfits on and none of your outfits fit and you feel like a, like a sausage in a tin can and you're like, no, none of this, none of this fits. And, and then now you're worried because you're not eating right. And I'm like, man, I... I why did I eat that donut last night, right? And so now you're, you're freaking out because I, I might have heart disease and, and I might be, you know, I, and, and, and my knee kind of hurts. So what, what's wrong with my knee? I, I, sh I should be working out, but I'm not working out. So then instead, now you're already running late. So, so you get the, the, the WebMD app and you start figuring out, hey, what, 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 where do knee pains come from? And then you find out that you're one of the 0.0002% of people who have knee cancer. And so now you're, you're freaking out because you got knee cancer. You're like, I'm going to die. And, and now I'm late and I'm dying, right? Right? And so, so then you're freaking about that. If you're not about that, then you get a chance to, to look in the mirror and you look at yourself. You're like, oh my gosh, I look rough. Look at those wrinkles. What's going on with me? Oh, I'm really dying now. Like, look at me. I, 
and my youth is just disappearing right in front of me, right? So then, then, then you run downstairs, and, and if you're single, you don't really have time to eat well, so you grab a Pop-Tart or you grab a piece of toast, so you're feeling even worse about your health because you're not eating well, right? And if you're a parent, you either give your child a Pop-Tart or a piece of toast, and then you're like, I'm a terrible parent, and my child's going to end up being a drug dealer or in prison because I'm not giving them gluten-free food, Right? <laughs> I'm not giving my child gluten-free water, and so my child is going to be a drug addict because of me, right? So then, then you get to work, and, and, and all of a sudden, your company starts talking about downsizing, or if you're a student, you get to school, and you, you, you get a, 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 a C instead of a, an A, and so you're freaking out, asking yourself, did I even pick the right career? Am I going down the right path? Am I wasting my time? I thought I was this far along in my semester, but I actually have, you know, uh, four, 47 credits left, and so what am I doing here? Should I even be doing it? So you're having this existential debate in your head and in your heart about, did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? Or like I said, if you're at a company, they're talking talking about downsizing and you're like, what am I going to do? What if I lose my job? I'm going to be out on the street and, and, and then my kids are really going to be in trouble, right? And then we're not even talking about the car ride on the way because you're running late. You're, you're, you're anxious and angry because people are stopping at stop signs and, and, and turning blinkers on and doing right things. Like, how dare you stop at a stop sign? Don't you understand that I'm worried and anxious, Right? And then, and then you get home and then you try to unwind a little bit by getting on Facebook or Instagram. And then if you're single, then now you're dealing with the fact that you're the one person who's still single in all the world, apparently. And so the one person you thought was never going to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend now has a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And you're the one person that still doesn't have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And you're like, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. I'm never going to have anyone in my life. Right. Or if you're a parent, you sit down and there's always that mom or that dad who's like a way better parent than you, and they are giving their kids gluten-free snacks and gluten-free water, and you're like, oh my gosh, why can't I be a good parent? Look at that parent. It's like their, their whole life is like a Pinterest page, and like they just have it all figured out, and I don't have it figured out. Like, why are they so much better than me? So then you're freaking out about not being a good parent, or not being a good home decorator, or not being skinny enough, Right? Then you, you sit down for dinner with your spouse, but because they had a tough day and you had a tough day, both of you are worried and both of you are anxious, so you end up getting in a fight. So then you start thinking, man, my marriage is over. I should have died. Did I marry the right person? Did he marry the right person? Is he tired of being married with me? And my, maybe he knows that I'm chubby too, and so he's seeing the chubbiness too. He's going to leave me and not be with me, and, 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 and oh my gosh, what if he divorces me? Uh, 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 or, or he's looking kind of chubby, so what if he dies? And, like, you know, then, then, and so all of a sudden, you're just having a, a, a freak out because you had a little scuffle at dinner, right? Then you sit down for bed and you're laying in bed, you turn the TV on to put the nightly news on and you find out about people getting killed and you're the, the election stuff is on and, and, and then you start freaking out about, oh my gosh, what if this person is the governor and what if that person is the mayor and what if that person is the president and you just start freaking out about what's gonna happen and then you're looking at the economy and you're like, what if, I, what if the, the, the economy just continues to go down and, and, I, and I never retire and I never... And then you go to bed and now you're like, man, why am I so worried? <laughs> I feel so anxious. Why am I so tense? Right? And that's a normal day. That's just a normal Tuesday. Right? But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. How has all that worrying helped? Think about, think about it. I probably just described a normal work week for you, and I want you to ask, answer me this. How has that changed your week at all? How has worry made your life better? Right? It has. 
I, I don't know about you, but I've never gotten through a difficult season in my life and looked back at it and said, man, I, I'm glad I had worry to get me through. Woo! Like middle school. Middle school was terrible for everybody, amen? Right? You don't ever look back and be like, man, middle school was tough, but man, I'm so glad I had worry next to me because if it wasn't for worry, I never would have gotten through middle school. Right? Or, or you're going through, you want, your, your family went through a tough financial time. You get out of that financial time, that, that tough financial time. When you retell the story, you don't say, man, you know, I, we, were, we, were, we were really, really struggling, but we, we just worried our way through it. <laughs> and worry came through again. No one ever looks back at a season of difficulty and says, man, if only I would have worried more. If only I had more people around me to worry with me. It would have been so much better. No. Worry does not work. And I heard one, put it, one person put it this way. He said, the reason why we don't want to admit that, listen to this, is not because we doubt God, but because we refuse to doubt ourselves. For a lot of us, listen, the reason why you struggle with worry, the reason why you do this and not this, is not because you doubt God, but because you refuse to doubt yourself. Even though all the evidence tells you you should doubt yourself repeatedly and often, you refuse to doubt yourself. That's your problem. That's my problem. It's not that we doubt God, but we refuse to doubt ourselves. Even though all the evidence tells us that we should 100% doubt ourselves. Worry doesn't work. And I would take it a step further. Not only does it not work, it actually makes things worse. John MacArthur has this uh, quote that from one of his commentaries that I have up here, and I want to read it to you. And he, he describes how worry, not only, make, not only is it does not work, but it makes things worse. Look, look at this illustration. He says, it has been reported that a dense fog, extensive enough to cover seven city blocks, 100 feet deep, is composed of less than one glass of water. Divided into 60,000 million droplets. Listen to this. In the right form, a few gallons of water can cripple a large city. In a similar way, the substance of worry is nearly always extremely small to the size it forms in our minds and the damage it does in our lives. And so some of us here, and, and I put myself in this category, some of us here have been in walking in fog now for a week or for a month or for a year or for a decade. And the fog, is, there's just so much fog that you don't even know where it came from anymore. But according to MacArthur, because of how worry works, it, it takes things that aren't that proportionally big but makes them way bigger than what they actually are. It's probably some little thing that you were worried about that was never dealt with, and all of a sudden, one glass of water becomes a whole city in fog. And so that fog is affecting your marriage, even though your worry is actually at your job. Or it's affecting your parenting, even though your worry is actually at school. Whatever it is, like, it's, it's somewhere else, but it, the, the fog just spreads everywhere it wants. That's why worry does not work. Not only does it not work, it makes things worse. So that, that's a Christian perspective. But let me give you a secular perspective. This is Dr. Charles Mayo, who has the Mayo Clinic, the, the guy who founded the Mayo Clinics. Look how he describes worry. Not a Christian. He says, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. Then he says, I have never met a man or known a man to die of overwork 
but I have known a lot who died of worry. So, so forget about what Jesus says, that worry can't add an hour to your life. Worry takes hours from your life. It doesn't add anything. It, all it does is take away. That's what worry does. So worry, to answer the question, if you go back to the questions, does not work. Then the last question that I think we should ask and answer is why is worry a sin? Like, why, like what's actually wrong with worry? Like, why is worry a sin? And you know, why, you know why I think that's a question that we have to ask? Is because there's a lot of you here, even people who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, who you in your heart of hearts don't actually think worry is a sin. Actually, Jerry Bridges has a book called Respectable Sins, and I think it's about 30 chapters of different sins that we commit as middle-class Americans. And he says that one of the most acceptable, respectable, downplayed sins in the church today is worry, right next to gossip and greed, okay? There's some sins that you just, no, 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 we can't do that. But worry? Oh, man, I can't tell you how many prayer meetings I've been in, how many uh, uh, Bible studies I've been in, how many life groups I've been in, and someone's like, I'm worried about this. And yeah, we should pray about whatever they're worried about, but you know what we should be praying about? We should be praying about their worry. And we're like, oh, come here, sister, come here, brother. We're, we're so sorry that you're worried. And, oh, my gosh. And we, and we never actually pray for the fact that they're worried. We pray for what they're worried about, but we never actually pray about the fact that they're worried. Worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. When you worry, you are sinning against God. And I know that there are some people because of chemical stuff, they have, you know, because of the fall, there's a, there's a, a chemical reaction, right? So you, maybe you need a, a medicine for that. I've met people who've had that. But even those people, let's say 50% is, is uh, uh, chemical, there's, there's at least 50% that's not, okay? Worry is a sin. For some of you, that's the only thing you needed to hear this morning. That when you are worried, you are sinning against God. You are going up against everything he told you not to do. And the reason why we know worry is a sin, and I'm not making this up, is because Jesus actually says it's a sin in verse 25. He begins by saying, therefore I tell you, do not worry. And you're like, oh, well, about what? My finances or just my children? No, no, no. Do not worry about your life. That's the whole thing, guys. Do not worry. So we know it's a sin because if Jesus says not to do something and then you do it, you're sinning. That's how we know it's a sin. Okay? And, and, and in the Greek, that's in the present imperative. So here's what this means. He's not suggesting it. He's commanding it. And because it's in the present imperative, here's what he's actually doing. He's commanding you to stop something that you were already doing. Jesus doesn't even know you. He knows you because he created you. But he doesn't even know you like perfectly. Like he's here and he walked with you, right? Like he, he, he doesn't even have to know you. He's saying if you're a human, you worry. And the present imperative means stop doing something that you were already doing. And once you stop doing it, you are never supposed to do it again. So when you do it, you're sinning. And if no one's ever told you that, I apologize. You no longer have that excuse. I no longer have that excuse because worry is sin. Okay. So if worry is a sin, then the question we have to ask, which is the third question, is why is worry a sin? We've already concluded that it is a sin, but what is so bad about worry? 
Why is God so bothered and offended by worry? How cold can he be? How insensitive can God be? Why is worry a sin? Well, there's two reasons why worry is a sin. The first reason why worry is a sin is because worry is pagan. And the second reason why worry is a sin is because worry is prideful. Okay? It's pagan and it's prideful. So the first reason why worry is a sin is because worry is pagan. Okay? Well, I know that. I I can tell you that with confidence because Jesus himself says it. Look what he says in verse 32. He says, for the pagans... Run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. So, 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 so Jesus actually tells us that the only people that worry are pagans, people who don't have a relationship with Jesus and as a result don't have a Father in heaven. They are acting like orphans and not like children because they are orphans. But because you are a child, you have no right to act like an orphan because you have a father in heaven who loves you and gives you everything that you need. He knows what you need before you know what you need. So we have no right to be worried. And when we worry, we act like pagan orphans instead of uh, beloved children. The world has every right to be worried because they don't believe there's a father in heaven who's taking care of them. But we have no right to be worried because we do have a Father in heaven who's taking care of us. That's what the passage is saying. See, in those days, the, the, the religions that were, that were taking place around Judea, which aren't really quote-unquote religions because they weren't worshiping actual gods. They were demons who were acting like gods. But, but the religions that were around Judea in those days were, were filled with anxiety and worry because the deities that these people were worshiping were very moody deities. They, they, were, they were oppressive and they, 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 they required much and gave little in return. And so people were constantly making sacrifices and worry. Is my God going to smite me? Is my deity going to destroy me? And so the pagans in Jesus' day were, were, were being swallowed up with anxiety. But it's no different today. Our, our culture are the people in our lives who, who don't have Jesus in their life, whether they admit it or not, are being swallowed up by worry. I know this because America is the most medicated nation in human history. That's not even like an exaggerated statement. It's not even close. The most medicated nation in human history is the United States of America. You know why? Because people are struggling with worry, but instead of going to their father, they're trying to handle it themselves. Okay? So when you don't go to God, when you are worried, when you are anxious, when you are freaking out about the same politics your neighbor is freaking out about, when you're worried about your money, just like your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus is freaking out about your money, when you're worried about your kids to the same degree that the people around you are worried about their kids, then how is Jesus any different for you then? If you are just as worried and just as anxious as your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, then why would they ever consider Christianity? Why? You have the same problems they do. Why would they consider being adopted as a child if you're walking around like an orphan? And so what we see as, 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 we, as we navigate this is, is, is Jesus is saying, you are being pagan. You are being pagan when you worry. Actually, uh, um, uh, Timothy Lane, the guy that I brought up earlier, he has this, this, this really helpful uh, explanation of this. 
If you guys remember, uh, before this passage, he, Jesus talks about uh, uh, your treasures in heaven. And then he says either God is your master or creation. Either the creator is your master or the creation is your master. But you are serving something, right? Jesus talks about that concept of, of serving something. But then what happens is, as he talks about being pagan, uh, Timothy Lane, he takes that concept and he says, listen, one of the ways that you can figure out if you're worshiping something other than Jesus, if something other than Jesus is your master, if something other than Jesus is your treasure, is by how worried you are. Because he says that over-concern, remember we said the definition of worry, over-concern is a direct result of over-loving something. So your worry is connected to your worship. When you worship something other than the creator, when you worship something in creation, whether that's your children or your marriage or your job or your finances or your retirement or whatever it is, when you worship something smaller than Jesus, worry shows up. Because if, if, if your treasure is Jesus, then that treasure is in heaven. And remember what we said, moths and, 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 and it will never rust or be stolen because he's safe. If Jesus is your treasure, worry disappears. But if your treasure is something here on earth, then worry increases. Because your over-concern is always connected to your over-loves, your over-loving. That's what he says. And you know what you're acting like when you do that? You're acting like a pagan. So the first reason why worry is a sin is because worry is something that pagans do. But the second reason why worry is a sin, and this is probably even the bigger reason, is because worry, and a lot of people haven't told you this before, but worry is prideful. Worry is probably the most prideful thing that a human being can do. And you might not believe me. You might be like, ah, oh, you're just making this up. Well, I want to read you a passage from Peter. Look what it says in 1 Peter 5. This is a passage that we looked at a few months ago, but I know you guys don't remember what I said, so I could just repeat it again. <laughs> Here, here's what it says in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. He says, Peter writing, he says, humble yourself, which is funny that Peter's saying this because he struggled with humility his whole life, right? Being humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So what Peter does here, and a lot of people don't see this when they read this passage, is he's actually comparing Pride and anxiety. He's connecting the two. Worry and pride. Worry and anxiety are one and the same. In order for you to be worried, you have to be extremely prideful. And you're like, well, I don't see the connection. Well, here's the connection. The only command that Peter gives in this entire passage is that first sentence where he says, humble yourself. That's the only command. So when he says, verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him in the Greek, that's not a command. He's, here's what Peter's saying. That if you humble yourself, then the natural result will be you casting your anxieties on God. But if you're not casting your anxieties on God, then it means you're not humbling yourself. That's the connection. The only command is to humble yourself. The, the, the root is to humble yourself. The fruit is to cast your, your anxieties on God. Okay? So when you can't give up your anxieties to God, it's because you are a prideful, arrogant person. That's what it says. It's our pride. It's our arrogance. I, I brought this up in the past. What, what, a lot of us, what we do is 
We, we, we love, we absolutely love God's throne, right? We're constantly moving him off the throne and putting ourselves on it. The problem with sitting on God's throne is that when you're sitting on God's throne, you have to think God's thoughts. And then you start being pulled and torn apart because you can't think like God thinks because you're not God. You shouldn't be worried about the things he's worried about because he's on the throne, not you. The problem with his throne is that when you're on the throne, you have to think the thoughts. And you can't think the thoughts because you're a human and not him. Okay? And so when you, when you do this, when, when you are someone who is struggling with anxiety and worry, you are struggling with worry because you're actually struggling with pride. Pride is the fruit. Anxiety, sorry, pride is the root. Anxiety is the fruit. Look at this. I'm going to show you this word. If you could put the two words up. There's one word, there's one letter that's at the center of both anxiety and pride. Only one word, only one letter. In the middle of anxiety is the letter what? I. In the middle of the word pride is the letter what? I. Think about it. Think about the language of anxiety, right? When you're anxious about something, you say, well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if we're going to have money to pay the bills. I don't know if my prodigal is going to come back to Jesus. I don't know if I'm going to be able to retire one day. See? Just the language of it reveals how, how self-centered and prideful we are. It's I, 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 I. That's why Peter says that in order to deal with your anxiety, you must humble yourself. Because once you humble yourself, you're going to look at your problems and say, look, I know I'm a nobody. I'm under the mighty hand of God. The only person that can do something about this is the mighty hand of God. It's him. This is big. And it's what we have to understand if we are going to deal with our problems. I heard one commentator put it this way. He was looking at Adam and Eve. And he said that Adam and Eve, here's the problem Adam and Eve had, right? God is the king, and he gives Adam and Eve, he makes them stewards, stewards of all the creation. So think about it. God is the king, Adam and Eve are stewards, and everything else is under Adam and Eve. Everything. He gave them everything. The only thing that was above Adam and Eve was God. And yet they sinned because in their pride, they didn't want to be stewards, they wanted to be kings. And the same thing that got them kicked out of the garden is the same thing that gets us in trouble. God, I don't want to be a steward. I want to be the king. Someone said that anxiety is to control the, trying to control what's uncontrollable. And there's nothing more uncontrollable than God. But what you're actually doing when you're being worried and anxious is you're trying to control the king instead of just being a steward. That's why there's a story about Martin Luther and Martin Luther had a, a friend uh, who was helping him during the Reformation, and his name was Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon and Luther played a major role in bringing the Reformation about. And there's a story, I think it's in one of Martin Luther's journals, where, where Philip Melanchthon is struggling with worry and anxiety and fear. And, 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 and you would think that what Luther would do is he would do what we do when someone's struggling with worry and anxiety. Hey, buddy, it's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. It's okay. We're all worried. I'm not going to call you out on your worry. It's okay. You know, we'll, 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 let me pray for what you're worried about. But, but Luther doesn't do that at all. So, so his friend Melanchthon is struggling with worry. And look at how Luther deals with Melanchthon's worry. He says to him, let Philip cease to rule the world. You know why you're anxious, Philip? 
You want to be in charge. You're trying to be in charge. Let Philip cease to rule the world. The problem with Philip is that he was a steward trying to act like a king. So anxiety, worry, is not a respectable sin. It's not an acceptable sin. It is a sin. And it is pride. And it's you trying to take God's place. So ask yourself, what are the things that most worry me? And then ask yourself, why are those things making me worried? Well, it's probably because you're overloving those things. You're putting those things in a place where they shouldn't be. And then the last question you should ask yourself is this. What part of the gospel am I not believing? And what part of this am I showing pride and arrogance? And then I, prom- I promise you that as you go from being an overconcern to being an, a, just a godly concern, you give it over to God and you're going to start seeing change in that area. So, first thing we see is the sin of worry, and we're going to conclude just for a few minutes looking at the Savior of worry. Here's the thing about the Savior of worry. Right? We, we, we know we have a problem. Amen? We have a problem? Amen? But here's what's so crazy about Jesus. He takes a very serious problem that all of us have to one degree or another, and he makes it worse. He's like, no, no, you're not, you don't feel bad enough yet. Like, you don't understand how bad the situation is yet. And here's how you know that he, he doesn't make it better, he makes it worse. Because look what Jesus says. He, he, he takes it to a whole other level. Look at his solution, verse 33. In verse 33 he says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus' solution to your problem, to my problem with anxiety, is to seek first his kingdom and seek first his righteousness. And what most preachers in America would do right now is they would say, okay, so now we know we have a problem with worry. Here's how you fix your problem with worry. You got to just change yourself. You got to just change your perspective. You got to just finish, you know, just stop worshiping this and start worshiping that. And, and so they, they, all they've done, this whole message, if they're preaching it right, is talking to the heart. And then they give you application that only has to do with your hands, what you do. Hey, you, you have an internal problem, but let me give you an external solution. You want to fix it? Then seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Here's the problem with the, the, that phrase, change yourself. The problem with the phrase, change yourself, is the word yourself. Because you're the problem. You can't be the solution because you're the problem. I'm the problem. That's the problem. And so that's what bothers me about most preaching today, that they'll say, hey, just change your perspective, change your heart, change what you're worshiping, and everything will be better. No, 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 no. You can't give that type of application for this. Because the problem with change yourself is yourself. We're the problem. We can't fix it. Because if we could fix it, we wouldn't need the sermon in the first place. That's the thing. And so, so here's what Jesus does that is just so Crazy, he makes the problem worse before he makes it better. He says, I need you to seek his righteousness, seek my righteousness. A few weeks ago when we were in Romans chapter 1, we said that the word righteousness, it means to measure up to a certain standard. It means to be found acceptable and or worthy, okay? The problem with that is that we can't attain that ourselves. So if by seek righteousness, Jesus means figure it out, We have no hope because we can't figure it out. 
We can't figure it out. Actually, in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's a problem. Because we can't even reach the the, the Pharisees' righteousness, let alone Jesus' righteousness. And so he makes the problem worse before he makes it better. We're in a deeper hole than we ever thought. And so then what do we do? Well, I have three things here that Jesus gives us here. There's three Ps, and one leads to the next. The first thing Jesus says we have to do is we have to ponder. We have to think. Think, okay? And and here's how I know. Because Jesus, there's, there's three things that Jesus says in this passage that allow us to see that thinking, pondering is what we need, right? Because he says uh, in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. The word look has to do with our thinking in the Greek. Then in verse 28, he says, see how the flowers of the field grow. Again, the word see doesn't have to do with our eyes. It has to do with how we think. Then he describes us in verse 30 as you of little faith. And little faith, the word faith, when we think of faith, we always think of faith as this blind trust. Right? When we tell people, hey, you just got to have faith, we always define faith as this blind, turn your mind off trust. Just blind faith. Hey, just have faith. You know what the problem is? You don't have enough faith. Jesus says that in order to have faith, you don't turn your mind off. You have to turn your mind on. The reason why you are anxious, listen to this, anxiety is not the presence of thinking. Anxiety is the absence of thinking. You are not thinking, Jesus says. Faith isn't blind faith. Faith means I am logically believing in the promises of God. It's facts more than faith. So you're anxious not because you're overthinking, but because you're actually underthinking. You've turned your brain off. That's why we're struggling. Jesus says that we have to turn our brains on. Uh, Martin, Luther, Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that, uh, uh, he's a pastor from back in the day, he says that the problem with us is that we're actively listening to ourselves instead of, uh, we're passively listening to ourselves instead of actively speaking to ourselves. We're just letting our hearts talk to us all day, all day. And what are you going to do about that? And how are you going to fix this? And what happens if you lose your job? And what happens if you can't retire? We're passively listening instead of actively speaking. Turn your brain on, Jesus says. Not off, on. Okay? So the first thing we do is we ponder. But then what what is it that we're pondering? Well, Jesus, what he wants us to ponder is our position because he says, see the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Jesus wants you to ponder your position in him. Here's the thing about our position in Jesus that's just beautiful. There's two words that reveal our position in Jesus. The first word is the word valuable. He says, are you not more valuable than they? And the second word is the word righteousness. That's where we see our our position. Listen, the thing about the word valuable is Jesus says, you are more valuable than birds. Why does he say that? Well, we're more valuable than birds because we are the only beings in the entire universe that are created in God's image, okay? So we are valuable because we are created in God's image. But listen to this. We're even more valuable, not just because we are created in God's image, but because we have been redeemed by God's son. I don't think you're hearing me right now. I I, I think I'm just talking to myself up here. I don't think you're really following with me yet. So, So he says that you are valuable because you are created in God's image, but even more so because you have been redeemed by God's son. Can I get a witness and an amen? That's what he's saying to us. That's what he's telling us here. I am valuable. 
And when, you, when, when, when the reason why you're worried is because you forget that you're valuable. You get what Paul Tripp says is called identity amnesia. You forget who you are and then you don't act how you should. When you forget you're a child, you start acting like an orphan. That's what this passage is telling us. You have forgotten who you are. You are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Then the other place where we see the, our, our, our position is in the word righteousness. The word righteousness, remember what I said, it's actually the, it's, it, the same word righteousness that crushes us is the same word that lifts us up. It's crazy. The same word that crushes us to the dust is the same word that lifts us into the heavens. Because the word righteousness, we already said, the problem with seeking righteousness is that we can't seek righteousness because we are sinners. But here's what's beautiful about God's word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says that Jesus Christ, Christ is our righteousness. And so righteousness is not just a standard that we live up to, it's a savior that comes after us. And so the reason why I can seek after righteousness is because righteousness has already sought after me. See, once I understand that I, my, my righteousness uh, positionally, then and only then can I make progress in my righteousness progressively. I get my positional righteousness and now I can make progressive Okay, I've had progressive pro progression in my righteousness. My position leads to my progression. That, that's the beautiful about, thing about this. It says that in the passage, it says that we must seek God's kingdom. Listen, the only reason why you and I can seek God's kingdom is because the king of that kingdom first sought us. And like I said during communion, in Jesus, we have a savior who not only relates to us because he's human, but rescues us because he's God. In that passage that I read from Peter, I don't know if you noticed where it talked about Satan being a roaring lion. Satan being a roaring lion. And that the people who he's most likely to get are the people who are prideful. But you know what's crazy? You know the one thing that lions are scared of? A bigger lion! Listen, Satan's not afraid of you. And when you're prideful, you're being exposed for Satan to come after you. But the one thing a lion is scared of is of a bigger lion. Amen? And the Bible says that Jesus Christ, our righteousness, our king, is also the lion of Judah. And so Satan is looking at you, but you better believe he's looking at Satan. And he says, go ahead and try and touch him. Try it. And you'll see what will happen to you. Once you understand, if you go back to the three Ps, once you ponder your position and you understand your position, then your priorities change. Jesus says that once you understand your position, that the king has sought you, that the righteousness has sought you, then you can seek the kingdom and the righteousness. And then he says that what, what starts to happen is your priorities start to change. Because you don't have to worry about your kingdom because Jesus got that. Listen, I don't have to worry. If Jesus is the bread of life, I don't have to worry about my daily bread. If Jesus has clothed me with righteousness, I don't have to worry about my daily clothes. If Jesus is eternal life, I don't have to worry about my daily life. Jesus argues from the greater to the lesser. If I can take care of that, then why are you going to doubt me in this? If I just bought you a $2 billion gift, why are you going to doubt me on the wrapping paper? <laughs> listen, here's how your priorities change. When you understand, listen, to the degree that you see Jesus being concerned about your affairs, to that same degree, you will be concerned of, about his affairs. To the degree that you understand your position, to that same degree, you will change your priorities. Listen, the only way we can ever hope to overcome our debilitating worship is with overwhelming 
sorry, the only way we could ever hope to overcome our debilitating worry is with overwhelming worship. The answer to worry is a greater worship. So even though this problem, this sin of worry is bad, praise be to God that the Savior of worry is infinitely greater. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.